0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleinman.
0: On today's episode of Radio Free Humanity, we welcome Davis Mathias Foster, who's going to be talking to us about the threat of the far right in the U.S. and how that threat has evolved uh, over the Trump presidency and afterwards. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. We are recording this current events section on Tuesday, November 9th, and we're going to be talking about something that a lot of people are talking about right now in U.S. politics, and that's the elections that happened last week. Um, The elections were surprisingly good for Republicans. Uh, They won the Virginia governor's race and came very close to defeating a Democratic incumbent in the New Jersey governor's race, and everyone is releasing their hot takes on what this means for the more significant elections next year where Republicans have the chance of perhaps taking back the Senate and the House. So people are debating you know, what kind of strategies work best and why Republicans had such a good showing. Um, Andrew, you've probably read more of the these hot takes than me at this point. What are your big takeaways?
1: Basically, everybody rushed to do a hot take and everybody is spinning it their way. It's messier than people make it. It was very bad for the Democrats, but some things that people are saying are just not factually correct, like the entire problem in Virginia, why the Democrats lost was Biden voters of last year flipping to Trump. There was some of that, but uh, the Democratic turnout was was down. Okay, So it's not just flipping votes, it's that the Democrats did not turn out so-called their voters it's not clear why that's the case democratic turnout generally drops in off-year elections even even midterm elections and that's because democratic voters have much harder lives so they have to take care of kids they got to go to work they don't work in places where they can just say oh i'll be back in a couple hours i'm going to go vote you know their boss says you come back in a couple hours don't come back right that's kind of jobs that they tend to have a lot more but yeah, so so turnout was way down. The other thing is the Democrat won the gubernatorial race in New Jersey by more than Yunkin, the Republican won in uh, Virginia. Still, in all, there were major Democratic losses. This is not really surprising for an off-year election like this. But you put it together with other things, and it's what's going on is. Biden is not popular, his popularity has fallen, and in particular it's fallen among black people very substantially, his approval rating, and that's due to a number of factors, one of which is he doesn't seem to be getting anything done, and in particular he said to black people, I'll have your back, and it doesn't look like that. But I tell you, that to me the the biggest problem is, it's a huge problem, that the attempt by McAuliffe, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Virginia to tie youngkin to trump really did not succeed i mean it certainly didn't succeed in getting him elected and in general it doesn't seem thus far that the republicans are going to pay a price for trying to steal the election have a coup kill cops you know storm the capitol and all of this is it that voters don't care or that most of the the media is is ignoring this issue which is i mean the the fu- the future of democracy is the issue of our time uh, it's the issue of the moment and everybody right and left recognizes this but thus far it, it just not it hasn't penetrated into mainstream common discourse. It's not what people are talking about. It's partly that the media, most of it, you know, you move away from CNN and MSNBC, and they're covering it all the time, really, literally all the time. But, but elsewhere, it's it's not happening. So, you, you know, you have all this stuff like, well, the Democrats can't run against Trump. That in itself is hugely problematic, because if it's the case that voters don't care, and they're excusing an insurrection which is just one prong of a coup attempt, then we're really sunk. Because if they're excusing that, you're not going to buy them off with social democratic programs, built back slightly better and a little bit of infrastructure. What that's indicating is enough of the the population doesn't care about democracy. And the moment you don't care about democracy, Donald Trump begins to look pretty good.
0: There's been a lot made about um, the role that this manufactured debate about critical race theory in schools played in the Virginia governor's race. The Republicans created this canard, this fake issue about critical race theory being taught in schools and used it as a wedge issue to whip up a bunch of like white nationalist sentiment and, and a white victimhood sentiment. Um, meanwhile, Democrats didn't seem to have an effective strategy in countering this, and they weren't able to like make this an issue of um, Republicans being for censorship or make anti-racism something that's worth defending politically. Instead, they were sort of stuck in this dynamic they often get into where they're just playing defense and the, the culture war issues and never playing offense.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you look at what Youngkin did tying it to critical race theory with Book Beloved by Toni Morrison. I mean, that is just flat-out white nationalist pandering. That is the the lion's share of what's going on. I absolutely agree with you.
0: Amanda Marcotte had a piece in Salon on the 5th where she talked about the need for Democrats to really um, get ahead of Republicans on these culture war issues and figure out how to fight them effectively and have clear messaging. Um, on the other hand, over in Jacobin Magazine, Paul Heideman had a piece saying the opposite, that Democrats need to just forget this culture war stuff and dismiss it as distractions and instead offer people social democratic goodies
1: Paul Heidemann basically says that Youngkin is just a country club Republican and he's not a Trumpite. He won because he wasn't a Trumpite. And this is bad news for the Democrats because they've they've been trying to take this distraction, Trumpism, and run with it. And now that's falling flat. Ha 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 ha. That's that's the sense that I got from him. Yeah.
0: He's basically just towing the Jacobin party line, which is that Anything about Trump or race is just distraction and people should just focus on social democratic programs.
1: Yeah, he doesn't kind of say that, but there's the, the code words. At the end, what the party needs is a convincing political vision for how it will improve people's lives.
0: On the other hand, there was this piece in Salon by Amanda Marcotte from a few days ago where she takes like the opposite position than um, Heidelman and the Jacobin, where she's saying that like Democrats need to get ahead of these culture war issues and argue convincingly and stake out their terms convincingly because. Right now, it seems like they're just kind of ignore them and hope they go away or they act too slowly on them or not aggressively enough. She's saying, look, we knew a long time ago that the Republicans were going to try to spread COVID to undermine Biden's presidency. And we knew they were were going to use the critical race theory as this ridiculous wedge issue to get people riled up in school board meetings and turn out Republican votes. And Democrats could have gotten ahead of those issues a long time ago. They could have had a vaccine mandate a long time ago. They could have turned this into a debate about censorship in schools but they failed to do that, and they they were very late to the game on developing effective messaging on these things, and now they're paying the price. She's saying the opposite of Jacobin. There's this hesitancy to engage with the culture war issues that's really hampering them.
1: I think she's absolutely correct. And the reason that they're hampered uh, is largely that it's a party without a coherent message. It's the party of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Manchin. And a lot of the people in the party... We we say it's the Jacobin line, but it's the line of a lot of the so-called moderates in the uh, Democratic Party. We just have to uh, pander to white nationalist sentiment among whites, otherwise we're going to lose the elections. So let's talk about what uh, voters do agree with us about, which is they want goodies. Very sophisticated people like David Shore, the youngish so-called leftist data analyst, who are like waving this banner he, he's much more influential than Jacob this is what a lot of the democratic party is trying to do and you got the other people who are not and as a result you don't have a, com- uh, a coherent message you got two whole different messages and you know so on the one hand you're saying trumpism is bringing liberal democracy in america to the breaking point this is a life or death moment and on the other hand you're arguing about details of some infrastructure package you know, and that's taking up all your time and energy, and 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 that's what you're focused on, and that's what the, the the media is is focused on what you're doing. I mean, there's just a fundamental lack of coherence there. They just can't do that because they don't want to take as a party. There is no stand within the party. We're going to come out foursquare against white nationalism. This is what Marcotte is saying. She says you can get out in front of these. Uh, so-called culture war issues by reframing them and saying, you know, you're against the right wing uh, censoring what's taught in the schools. They don't do that, so they fall into this trap of, oh, you're not for parents' rights, you know, and uh, famously McAuliffe stuck his foot way down his throat during a debate and said, you know, I don't think parents should be telling the schools what to teach. I mean, look, I could do better than that.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our discussion with Davis Mathias Foster about the far right and U.S. politics. On today's podcast, we welcome Davis Mathias Foster to talk with us about the danger of the far right and U.S. politics. He has just authored a piece which you can read on With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative. The piece is called The Threat from the Far Right Post-Trump. The title is fairly self-explanatory. So, Davis, uh, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I should mention we are recording this on November 4th of 2021. So you opened the piece talking about what attracted you to a Marxist-Humanist initiative, uh, specifically MHI's position on Trumpism. What was it about uh, our position vis-a-vis Trump that you were interested in?
2: It was the only group that I could see that I could find that was putting the threat from Trump You know, it it had a really hard line that Trump is dangerous. And I had been following the alt-right since before that. They had had this time where they had a couple of mass shootings. You know, there was the Charleston church shooter. And then there was a lot of these efforts to put down Confederate monuments, which they they had gathered around. And then Trump, he ran, and every disparate group got behind him. So I thought they were like Trump was dangerous. Probably more because of this alt-right element, but I, the more and more I look, the more I kind of found out that it, Trump was the real dangerous part, even more than just the alt-right, who are still dangerous. You said
0: MHI was the only group that you came across that was ex- understanding the gravity of the threat posed by the far-right and Trumpism. Can you contrast that to what you were seeing in other left organizations?
2: Yeah. So I don't have a particular, like, a lot of experience with left organizations, but just kind of like the, the 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 talk that I was hearing, you know, from people who would call themselves leftists, just on like you know Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, uh, th- they were really downplaying this, and I felt like I-, I knew how much people like you know these podcasts, Richard Spencer, Stormfront—they were all really excited for Trump, and I was like, this is probably something that people should notice or at least take note of. It seemed like there was. Not an understanding of even the dangers of fascism that was being presented. It was, it was very dismissive of the danger.
0: One of the things that MHI talked about in, in our perspectives in 2018 talking about the danger of Trumpism was that sometimes on the left, people were approaching the problem of Trumpism with this sort of sympathy for the white working class and thinking that there was something progressive about the Trumpism, or or at least there was an opportunity for the left in the Trumpist phenomenon because it was anti-establishment or anti-neoliberal.
2: Oh, yeah. Yes. And
0: in order to do that, there had to be this dismissing of the fascist dynamic of Trumpism and dismissing the racism and authoritarianism and misogyny and the violence and the opposition to the rule of law and all the things that, you know, we talked about in 2018. And of course, all came true and emerged even more Disturbingly, over the next four or five years, it, it, it's interesting you're talking about being aware of the dangers of the far right. Maybe before the rest, before the rest of us were alerted to the dangers of the far right. Why is it that you didn't just think that these were just like marginal? people on the political spectrum and not you know, sometimes i feel like before at least before trump was elected people's perception of like white nationalists and uh the far right were that they were like very marginal kind of fringe characters and weren't a real danger to society am i right that you're
2: saying you you were not of that persuasion yeah, uh, somewhat it's hard to tell because there aren't any real hard numbers you know about how many people have these horrible views but i knew what they believed I knew that what Trump believes and they're not that dissimilar, at least in his rhetoric. And, you know, there was this real sense from the alt-right at that time that the alt-right at the time were were kind of thinking that he might, you know, establish an ethnostate. He might like just do a total fascist takeover. I I think I just knew how closely aligned Trump was to uh, these people. So a lot
0: of your pieces focused on the alt-right before and then after the Charlottesville incident. This was the gathering of different white nationalist organizations under the slogan of Unite the Right in 2017 in Charlottesville that uh, led to the death of Heather Heyer and all sorts of violence. What changed about the alt-right in the U.S. after Charlottesville? Like, wh- how, Why was that such an important sort of milestone in their I, I hate to call it a movement. It's like the opposite of movement. <laughs> whatever you
2: call a reactionary movement. It really threw their whole movement into disarray. I don't want to go into like the full kind of like backstory of Unite the Right because it is very complicated. But the organizer Jason Kessler, he uh, he was kind of trying to unite everybody, all these disparate groups because they had done that under Trump, right? Unite the Right was big, big partly because he he got Richard Spencer to attend. There's actually leaked. Text messages he's it, it's they're kind of hilarious to read, you know. He calls Richard Spencer my liege at one point, you know. Oh my god, yeah, it, it's embarrassing. That kind of made a lot of people more excited to attend. This follows the whole optics debate where they kind of talk about how to present themselves, and there is this thing of presentability they wanted to get across. And The problem with fascism and fascists is that you know, the rhetoric is. So aggressively, you know, racist, homophobic, transphobic, everything, you know, just very bigoted, and they think that, like, you know, they're being attacked by somebody, usually Jewish people, and they're really violent. That, like, it's an inherently violent political ideology, and it lends itself to spree violence. So, no matter how much they talk about how much they want to, like, they talk like this, don't do this. It ends up just because of the pool of people that they have. It, It just happens, and it happened in Charlottesville. And once it did, Jason Kessler, he he tweeted out a a disgusting tweet about Heather Hare, the the woman who was killed uh, when the car crashed through the crowd. And they all abandoned him, basically, immediately, because you couldn't do that. That was against, basically, like, all of the decency politics that they had established.
1: Who abandoned who?
2: Among the bigger people at that event... Mikey Knott of the The Right Stuff or TDS podcast, he was there, and he got his way narrowly out of the civil lawsuit. And Richard Spencer was there, of course, and Jason Kessler and Identity Europa as well. And those were the main groups, and a lot of them were implicated after the events, and they all just kind of tuck tail and run. They did not want to get any sort of, you know, legal actions against them. Once that happened, a lot of these groups, they just, like, they didn't have a trump to gather behind. Part of the reason that they can't exist comfortably without kind of this goal or some kind of uniting force is because they don't really take the time to to talk to each other. They don't believe the same things, and they kind of hate each other. So once they had a reason or kind of like a forced reason to fall apart, the infighting almost immediately began, and from there it kind of has been up and down.
0: So just to be sort of clear, most of these groups perceived the Charlottesville as a as a disaster in terms of the optics, like they didn't present themselves well to the American public, and then on top of that, they didn't want to be associated with the event because of fears of legal repercussions. Both of those things were sort of driving them. <clears throat> I wonder, like, what the optics could have been, like, what op, what were the optics they were hoping for, that they were going to march the streets chanting anti-Semitic slogans and waving tiki torches and all these people were going to watching on TV. We're going to you know, want to jo- join the fight for a, a white and ethno state or, <laughs> you know, what exactly, what was their expectation? Do you have any sense of, or did they have a plan for, did they want some better optic to emerge from it? Like what, what else were they expecting to have happen?
2: They were, uh, they, they wanted to have just, even if it was not a positive, they wanted like publicity because, they feel like if they get their message out there, it will stick. And unfortunately, I think they were right in a lot of places. They took advantage of a of a phenomenon of how poorly people are equipped to talk about racism in any depth, because they've kind of systematized in kind of the existence of this systemic racism and made it a rule. So it, it's hard. It, you can only be anti-racist, really fight these people because if you're one of those people and they successfully did this you were kind of like well i don't think black people are genetically predisposed to crime or being unintelligent or whatever but you know they have cultural problems and yada 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 it, it's hard for those people to kind of really debate these right-wingers because they just aren't equipped to racism is kind of just a it's a threat in the united states where if you pull at it it, it strikes to something way deeper
1: they were they were trying to hide behind the idea of protecting tradition, you know, Confederate monuments, and this was about tradition. Right? And and Trump was trying to pick up on that in defense of them. Wasn't that how they were trying to market the the Charlottesville? Yes. So what? They, basically, they weren't prepared for one of their guys to just wantonly kill a woman and the bad publicity they yeah, got. Nah, they they have the sense that i got i mean i think this was particularly andrew anglin was we got to be very careful to bring people in who don't yet agree with us and acculturate them and so let's just act like you can't tell the difference between whether we're joking or whether we're serious Mm -hmm. oh yeah so i guess they get too far out in front at that point (laughs) point. Is that that what's going on Yeah, it's
2: funny you should mention that because that was a huge thing. I I think it's fairly well known these days that the wing they obscure their beliefs. They hide it behind irony, that joke about memes and all of this. They're like, oh, it's not racist, joking. And then it's really to kind of broadcast their beliefs. Uh, I think people are more aware of that now, but back then, not so much. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, free speech, yada, yada, yada. You know, we're just expressing it. we want to save the traditions here. And underneath all of this is a very violent ideology that was bound to violence. (laughs) It was always going to happen and it always does. It's just unavoidable.
0: So after Charlottesville... What changed about the alt-right's perception of Trump and their relationship to Trump?
2: After Charlottesville, they were still pretty pro-Trump, partly because Trump, if you can remember, that he released, like, what, three different messages about what happened, and notably the, the very fine people on both sides. So they were... I would say fairly happy with it uh, with him after that. They were they were pleased with his response. They thought that they co- he covered for
0: them. Well, what about nowadays? Because I mean, you hear about Richard Spencer endorsing Biden last in last year's election. Like, and I know after the January sixth insurrection, there was sort of this angst and people being upset with Trump. So, what what do the outright really think about Trump now? Is that position held? steady or has there been a disillusionment with Trump as a beacon head for their fascist takeover?
2: Yeah, so this is the one thing that I was particularly interested in because the, the support for Trump has been pretty consistent. But now, over these years, there's, there's definitely been, there's been splitting on. I think that like one of the reasons I think I joined MHI in 2019 is that I was realizing that the most relevant figures are the ones who stuck by Trump. And but yes, it's split. Richard Spencer, he, of course, as as you mentioned, he, he he was like, you know, this isn't working out. It's clear that he's not one of all us. I would really like for someone to handle COVID better, which I hate to make Richard Spencer sound reasonable at all, but you know, fair, I guess. Um, there was also Mike Enoch. He wanted to start his own third party, basically at some point because Mikey not being the pod uh, the podcast host of TBS, it's also called uh, the Daily Showa, which is horrible.
1: Yeah. Showa, Shoah, Daily Showa, showa is the the Hebrew word for Holocaust.
2: Wow. He's always been wow a Holocaust denier and all of that. So he eventually he turned on Trump because of Jared Kushner. He thought that it like. Trump was being controlled by Jews. Wow. I feel like this is one thing that a, a lot of people get caught on. Is that like they they use a lot of irony and joking about these horrible things and and like obscuring their language. And this is not a new phenomenon. They've always done this. Like but like with the KKK, you know, they called themselves the Grand Wizards and all of this stuff. And it was intentionally kind of ridiculous, but like they're really dangerous. So, and part of it is a filtering thing because if someone's going to laugh at a show called The Daily Show, Up, that's the kind of person they want listening in, in their community. It's an unfortunate and effective uh, recruitment strategy, I think.
0: The idea that alt-right's going to present themselves in these toned-down, palatable forums to the general public, is this still, like, the accepted strategy?
2: Within the alt-right, like, the very hard-right fascist. like, there is a lot of debate between them because they've been cut off. Like, they're all banned from Twitter and Facebook and all these social media groups. A byproduct of that is that—so this is going to be a hard thing for me to explain, but imagine you're a really shitty person and a fascist. You think that Jews are controlling the world. You have all these awful ideas. If you're saying that, and then someone else comes with a more extreme idea, for example, uh, you know, someone's like, well, I think that the Jews are uh, causing climate change. You can't be, really be like, no— that one's on us you know so there is this kind of like when they're left to by themselves without kind of having this pool of normal people to talk at try to recruit irritate all of that they end up just kind of creating a circular firing squad of who can have the worst opinion so a big thing that has happened with a lot of these people is that there is these people on one side who st- they want to be involved in electoral politics they want to be presentable and get media coverage. And on the other side, they call them siege pillars, which is a reference to the James Mason book Siege, who was an old neo-Nazi, and he was advocating for domestic terrorism to start a race war, Right. And there's a lot of these people. By the way, Mason himself is a is still a Trump supporter. He, he really loves Trump. Should t- tell you something. But th- there's those groups of people, and they whenever they interact with these rest of these kind of, I, I hate to call them less extreme because they're just they have the same views. It's just they disagree with how to do it. Is that they really stymie any of, of their abilities to organize? Because if you're talking about like, well, we need to support Trump, or we need to vote this, and we need to get on TV. If there's a person who's like, we need to, like, bomb a church, you're going to be like, well, they feel emasculated by them. It's a hard uh, thing for them to kind of parse and get through.
1: You're basically saying that whoever comes with the most hard line tends to win because everybody else looks like a wimp in comparison, so they tend to get more and more extreme, is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. I, always, I don't want to make this sound like it's a good thing, because it's not, uh, of course. But it, it does have the implications of more spree violence and that kind of thing. But it, ideally, you would like you know, get less actual pushing to be involved in American politics, which it, it is... Unfortunately, I think that there is a limited group of people who are, are kind of on their own, who have abandoned Trump, and they're shrinking... And then there's a growing group of people on that alt-right who are trying to tie themselves more to respectability politics It was part of the reason why I wanted to write about this, because I think that this is a very dangerous thing that's happening.
0: On the other hand, a lot of the ideas and language of the far-right have become so mainstream. I mean, before Trump, I mean, yes, we all knew that there was a lot of racism and authoritarianism, et cetera, and, the, and then... The mainstream Republican Party, but to hear like white replacement theory talked about on television, or to like the mainstreaming of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the mainstreaming of complete disdain for the rule of law, it, to have half the country be in favor of armed insurrection—does does the alt-right see victory in the fact that the Republican Party has basically become like a fascist party, or, or do they is still this is all just just like soft? fascism and sellout politics and you like what what is their perception
2: of of this yes they actually do kind of see a victory in this but like notably i think that more than even trump from what i can gather everybody from the old school like pre-alt-right right to the alt-right to even more modern people all love tucker carlson like i remember david duke talking on his radio show about how much he loved listening to Tucker Carlson. He's saying that he says things better than I do. There is a mixed bag. They they think that their movement, that their push was kind of stymied, but they do see success in this kind of resistance to what they would call like wokeism and uh, this kind of progressive project that they perceive is happening.
0: Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
3: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
0: Why do you think that these ideas became, became mainstream so quickly? And they didn't just become mainstream because... Republican leadership wanted it, or the people that owned Fox News wanted anti-Semitism and white replacement theory to be like broadcast on their network 24/7. Like all of a sudden, there was this mass audience of like rabid Trumpites who were eating this stuff up. I mean, maybe I answer my own question, but like what what how do these things become mainstream so quickly?
2: I think to an extent, it's always existed. We live in a very, very racist country, and I think that there was a, to an extent, there was a desire for that. I mean, like they've always kind of wanted this. You know, that you can see it in in flashes throughout the years. You know, there was like Sarah Palin. You know, I remember seeing her, and I was like, "Yeah, this is different." I, I think that it's gotten more extreme for sure, but it, it it seems like they there is a sense that they're like they're they're clinging on that, that they want to bring America back somehow from this, this going over the cliff. Uh, they, they they feel very like they're they're isolated and, and, and hated. They kind of enjoy that feeling, I think. Yeah, I, I just think it was the right time and it's always been kind of one of those things that they've wanted.
1: I, I think it's absolutely correct that basic sentiment that they're putting forth in terms of white replacement is extremely popular, and it's extremely widespread, and it doesn't have anything to do with their influence per se. I mean, in 2016, uh, a sociologist, Arlie Russell Hochschild, wrote this book that's gotten a lot of publicity called Strangers in Their Own Land, and that's just about right-wing maybe working class or whatever uh, people in Louisiana. This idea that the culture has changed, the demographics have changed, and they're the real Americans, and the the culture and status have moved in the other direction and left them behind. People are cutting in line, that kind of idea. Uh, It's a metaphor. They're deserving, the others are not. That's that's very widespread. So that's not what makes these folks kind of like different from the, the rest of the Trumpite base. But I, let me run a, um, a hypothesis by you. Why they've been able to make this stuff mainstream, it seems to me is what they've seen is Trump suffers no consequences. He says more outrageous things and blows up, but he repeats it. He doubles down, he triples down find people on both sides. I mean, just whatever. And, you know, people like Tucker Carlson pick up on this and say, there's this base, and it's implacable. And we we can say anything, do anything. And it's all a question of what side you're on. So let me push this more. Let me push this more. And as much as they push it, because they don't suffer a major blowback, they keep pushing.
2: Yeah, that's accurate. I would say they love that. They love that. He just says anything he wants. It it seems to me, and I don't want to hypothesize about their psychology so much, but it it seems like it's almost like a power fantasy for them, and they really love seeing Trump do all these things that they kind of want to do. But it's really important to realize that this is this is coming from the bottom up. It's not the other way around. That has terrible implications. But it, it 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 means that if Trump can't do something or like there's always going to do, be the demand for the kind of trumpian or fascist behavior, it, it's always going to kind of be pressuring the actions of any politician it's It's bad,
0: yeah, I mean, right now we are seeing all in all these uh, uh, the elections from two days ago and the coming elections, people are all trying to figure out how to get on the right side of the Trump base and what signals to give the base the shakedown of the party after. The insurrection in January uh, has been that everyone's had to line up and show their loyalty to the ideals of Trumpism and figure out how to capture that energy for their own purposes. Uh, as if politics weren't opportunistic enough, now you have this like super opportunism of you know whoever willing to like say the craziest possible shit. I mean, you have people out there, right? You have politicians out there like personally calling hospitals to try to bully them to prescribe ivermectin just as a way of like signaling their loyalty to the idea of crazy. Whatever wedge issue I can think of that'll like put me on the side of the Trump voters, I will show my fealty to it by saying the most crazy uh, outlandish, batshit crazy things so that I can like show these people that I am the craziest of the crazy.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I think you could see some kind of pushback to wanting to be like, "Yeah, the election was stolen." Like, it was a lot of Republicans didn't. At least I got the sense that they didn't really want to go with this line.
0: Yeah, for the first week or two.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then it became obvious that they had to. That's fucking dangerous. They're untethered from this line that you know there should be democracy. That is alarming because nobody, even the most hardcore fascist, back in 2016 would ever be like, yeah, I'm going to put that at the forefront of how I'm talking to the public. Uh, I I think democracy is bad, or I don't think our democracy works. They would never do that. But now it's just, they're free to do it. It's actually required if you're a Republican.
0: Since Charlottesville, QAnon came along, which is its own version of, like, far-right conspiracism, Uh, you know, how is that factored into the far-right's relationship to Trumpism? And maybe also like, what did QAnon mean for like the old school conspiracy uh, conspiracists
2: of the alt right, like Alex Jones? Should I explain like the basic what what QAnon is about? I
0: think um, probably most people understand the. I mean, not I. Can, I don't understand QAnon. I think most people. Yeah. Have, <laughs> I don't have follow following. It's sort of like <laughs> understanding quantum physics or something. Like I, I've read about it, but I can't. I couldn't <laughs> describe it. I don't explain it to you.
2: All these like lines drawn from bubbles to bubbles, trying to link Hillary Clinton to to Satan to like Hitler to whatever. It's just yeah, bizarre. and it
0: just seems like QAnon showed up and then it took over this some of the space that was being occupied by these far right groups and the conspiracy people and the anti semitism and all sort of got distracted or consumed by the QAnon and now like you know QAnon actually has real political power and influence in Congress in the government of the United States, right? And cotton congressional candidates. Uh, whereas the alt-right really doesn't to that extent.
2: There was a fair amount of worry. And I, like, I was terrified of it because I just didn't know how to paint it. That, like, once everybody kind of cracked down on all this QAnon stuff on social media, that there would be ripe for, uh, like, recruiting by the more far-right. And for some reason, it just hasn't taken. But they have remained. I think that it's probably important when you're talking about
1: QAnon
2: they might not be kind of an established, like, fascist, but they're just, I mean, they don't really believe anything that different. It's just way...
1: That different from the fascist? Yeah, right. it's a different
2: flavor. It's not pick whatever minority group that's really controlling everything. It's the Democrats and Hillary Clinton or the globalists or the China. It, it could be anything. Part of the big beliefs of QAnon is that and I actually don't know how many of them are kind of holding out for this, that there was going to be an event that they called the Great Awakening, which was going to be when Trump announced that he was arresting all of the Democrats and Hillary Clinton and et and very specifically, weirdly enough, <laughs> they he was going to send them to Gitmo and they were going to be tried by military tribunals. Like, they're very insistent on that one. And I find that funny. Like it's always like it's very important to know they're going to get Moe going to be tried in the military.
0: I <laughs> it sounds just like the you know, the Nazis sending the whole social democratic party to the concentration camp after they took power. You know, it's basically like a fantasy of, of fascist takeover and crushing your enemies and
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm gonna get rid of all the bad people. It's gonna be great. And then there's going to be kind of a return to this mythologized version of Of America, where everybody gets along and there's no divisions, and it's apocalyptic almost, and there used to be a joke that, like, when a lot of people who were following QAnon, when it first started, that when people started noticing that older people on the internet were taking to it, that the the joke was that QAnon is is for boomers who have gotten tired waiting for the rapture to happen, (laughs) and, um... (laughs) <laughs> it is not that different because it's like I'm going yeah. to put all the bad people in the in the camps I, it's going to be great and once that I do that and we just get rid of all of this all the people who are screwing it up for the rest of us that's it We're, we'll be fine and this is a very fascist idea there's a professor in Oxford who writes about fascism I don't agree with everything he says but his name's Roger Griffin and he coined the term palingenetic ultra-nationalism and mythology, which basically means that the nation is going to go back to this this time uh, where they were good, and that, like, there's a heavily mythologized past. You know, with Mussolini and Giovanni Gentile and all of them, they talk about, like, returning to Rome, you know, being like Romans again. The same with Germany, the same with Francois Spain. This is a very important thing, and I feel like with QAnon, it is an Americanized version of that. We're, we're going to go back to this time, literally make America great again. I, there's been a lot of comparisons to QAnon and the original or, like, very old anti-Semitic myths with, like, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which was a forged pamphlet that was supposedly written by these groups of Jewish elites. And they were talking about how they're going to destabilize all these countries by, like, interjecting Marxism and, and communism and whatever. And there's been about a billion versions of this uh, over the years. And Alex Jones and, and a lot of these conspiracies, they would absolutely deny it. And I'm sure a lot of them don't actually believe it, that that, that is kind of founded in there. But it really is. If you go back to, like, John Burke's society, a lot of these militia movements, they all kind of had this, this slant towards this idea of, like, a hidden group some description heavily implied to be jewish people that are controlling the country and QAnon is no different do i think that like most of them are anti-semitic no No, not like like blatantly they wouldn't say they were i should say but
0: in the same way that people will say like i'm that racist but yeah (laughs) exactly
1: i'm not anti-semitic i love the jews except for soros and the rothschilds
2: Exactly. Exactly. It, it is very much that. But like with conspiracy groups, QAnon has not only like hurt people like Alex Jones. It's basically been like a large tent for just about every conspiracy theory. uh Flat Earthers are, are into QAnon. You oh know. God. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, just recently, there's been a huge rally in D- Dallas. They're all waiting for JFK Jr. to return and crown Trump king. This is
0: JFK Jr. who died in a plane crash like many years ago, decades ago. And they they believe that he's been secretly alive and in hiding this whole time.
1: And he's he's going to become the vice presidential candidate along with Trump. (laughs) And the other day was the the big unveiling of something or other that didn't happen, right?
2: They left empty-handed, of course. There's a lot of things that I'm pretty sure I could kind of Elaborate on why it's taken so, but like within the QAnon community, they've kind of always hated the JFK Jr. people, and I find that funny. But like they can
1: never get rid of them, so this is
2: like this very heavy
1: contingent that they do not like. So, so the the, the, the quote mainstream QAnon people don't like the JFK Jr. QAnon. Yeah,
2: yeah, they they don't really. Okay, partly because like when QAnon was like the the person behind QAnon posting was asked about JFK Jr., he was like, um, no, of course not. And then, if you know conspiracy theorists, the, the JFK people, they were like, well, that's exactly what JFK Jr. would say if he was <laughs> secretly alive and in hiding. So it didn't really help. <laughs>
1: uh. This JFK Jr. stuff makes QAnon sound weird. It's just, it's just you know, it, 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 it it's, it's not respectable stuff. Yeah.
2: You know, that, that is the funniest part about it, too, because, like, the other QAnon people who hate the JFK Jr. people are like, listen, you're making us all look stupid. We have to get back to, to talking about how Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are siphoning the fear chemicals from babies' heads and not well, all this crazy JFK stuff. Wow. Well.
1: <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, we, we, we uh, joke about this, but there is a. a an underlying problem here. Beyond their actions, there's an underlying cognitive issue here. That it's it's not only these people, but it's very, very widespread. In the United States and probably through most of the world, very few people have any understanding of how politics works. There's been, like, investigations of this. There's a whole, whole, like, school of thought and study done, which is about, like, stealth democracy this is what, like, a very large segment of the American population wants, is basically for a technocratic elite that is, however, beholden to the real people to just do the technical work of government. And, and the the underlying belief is, because people cannot understand politics, they, they think that Actually, everybody agrees. Only some crazy people, you know, special interests, whatever, don't agree. But the real Americans, we all agree. So the politicians are just like taking money and are bought off and are pandering to the special interests. And they're bickering and all of this when, in fact, all of it could be just run nicely and not involve us. So instead of understanding like interests and conflicting interests and all of these things that you actually need to understand politics, they have no understanding of this and everything gets boiled down into the immediate actions and the immediate consequences of those actions and everything that happens is intentional that flows from from a basic lack of understanding and you have to then say why do these people have a lack of understanding well it has to do with two things i think one is the depolitization of the great mass of the American people. They're not involved in politics because that's the way the system works, right? They, they've they been cut off from that, okay? So the, the mainstream people and the people who want to represent them and so forth, they're, they're all to blame. And then the educational system just does a terrible job of trying to explain this stuff to people. So the underlying idea that all we have to do is get rid of these people who are messing everything up because the real people, we all agree, and we're going to return then to some golden age. That underlying idea is just extremely widespread in, in the populace, and that's why we're, we're, we're so screwed up right now. So it's partly a lack of education, and it's just partly people not understanding politics because they're not involved in it. They don't like it. and The idea that like there really are humongous numbers of people who are black, Latino, Latina, Jews, living in the cities, living in the suburbs, who do not agree with you, whose ideas are different, whose interests are different. And it's not just like some conspiracy. Yeah, everybody seems to agree with you. That's because of where you live and who you choose to associate with. People don't, don't really understand that. There's a very deep and very widespread problem. We're talking about the alt-right. We're talking about QAnon. Again, the basic attitudes are extremely widespread, and that's how somebody like Trump and somebody like Tucker Carlson are able to mainstream this stuff.
0: Toward the end of your paper, Davis, you wrote, quote, the alt-right post-Charlottesville shows in a microcosm the eventual failure of all fascist regimes, close quote. So what... Why is that? What is it about Charlottesville that shows a failure of fascist regimes? It's sort of inevitable in
2: fascism. See, I I was looking at the squabbling and the in-groups and the infighting and then the increase in right-wing violence and then more drama. And eventually, when something happens like that, they they almost immediately start pointing fingers at each other and it gets disruptive and it it becomes kind of, it's a matter of scale here, but you can imagine someone in control of a country and there is something they just cannot deal with and how do you explain that when you say that the only problem is this kind of group that has ruined everything and before that we were perfectly fine there is no real way to deal with reality that isn't separated from blaming people either vulnerable people or if they run out of those people they start blaming each other it is just kind of the nature of their belief. It is very common, and I don't understand if people can kind of challenge fascism on this grounds of it is not a feasible ideology. And because of that, it, it lends itself to uh, tragedy, violence, um, scapegoating, these kind of things. It's always because they have to find excuses for anything that they encounter that they do not like.
0: I think the dynamic you're describing makes sense. Uh, it's like the, the political energy that fascism seeks to harness is so unstable because it's only directed outward at these like mythologized enemies. Um, so it can't really deal with real political problems. It can only deal with this extremely like heated and emotional level of like uh, hatred and victimhood and blaming and violence. And it's difficult to maintain that and have that be the form of like a stable regime or even like a stable political movement. Um, It kind of reminds me, I think we discussed this a long time ago on the podcast, Robert Paxton's book on fascism. Maybe it was in a current event section. He talks about, if I'm remembering his book correctly, he talks about this dynamic in fascist movements where they constantly need to like escalate the political rhetoric escalate the dynamic to be like more extreme, that one gets used to a certain temperature of crazy and then you have to like turn the crazy up to like keep the dynamic moving. And so there's a sort of accelerating dynamic that increases the potential for violence and increases the potential for uh, instability that is common to a lot of fascist regimes. Although he also suggests that there's an opposite possibility that fascism can kind of run out of this energy and lapse back into just more of an authoritarian uh, regime. And I think his example of that is Franco in Spain.
2: Yeah. And even with like fascist regimes and authoritarian regimes that turn more inwards instead of expanding, they do, they crack down on more and more people. It, It seems like it's always just inherent that there is an enemy, that there is somebody who needs to be suppressed. who's fucking it up for the rest of the country. That's the fuel that runs the engine. It's a scary thing, and I, and I think that, like, one of the things that I wanted to get across in my article, one of the things is I realized, you know, and originally I was like, I was terrified of the alt-right gaining prominence, and then I realized I'm, I should have been way more concerned about Trump because, you know, the alt-right can kind of squabble and dissolve to an extent, which is not good, again. I don't want to make it sound like it isn't in any way a good thing to have fascists in your country. It's terrible. Uh, But to have someone who is capable of doing these things that they want and it is a much more sustained and much more massive threat that I think is uh, something people should be concerned about. Because I don't think that people realize just how dangerous Trump could be, you know, or well was and is.
1: Yeah, but no, if he comes back, that's that's the end of everything. Um, I mean, if he comes back into power. Um, that really is, I mean, that might be the end of civilization as we know it. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that has always surprised me, is a lot of the anti-fascist activity focuses on skirmishes with really low-level people, you know, and Mr. Big is there in the White House, and... I mean, he's getting all of his ideas from them, or the same sources where they get their ideas. But he's able to put a lot of this stuff into into action. Why did they not go after Mr. Big? Um, Is it that they're afraid, or or they just like you know hand-to-hand combat, or what? I don't know. I think it should be clear to everybody that there's bigger fish to fry.
0: Well, Davis, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think this has been a great discussion.
1: Yes, thank you so much. No, no
2: problem. I I really like doing it.
0: The piece is called The Threat from the Far-Right Post Trump, and we will, of course, link to it in the podcast description. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.